Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Vista. It is wonderful to see you here today. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our pastors. And if it is your, your first time here or you're new here, we are especially glad that you joined us. And we hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted that you fit right in and make yourself at home here at the Vista. Before we jump in, I had a very important announcement, though, to make. And that is uh, I need to let you know that this past Thursday, Pastor Dave had a birthday. Isn't that great? He turned 25 years old. Um, so make sure that you all see Dave and wish him a happy birthday if you see him in the comments because we do love Dave around here. Today, today we are, we are beginning one of my favorite yearly traditions, which is our Advent series. Sarah Hammond wrapped up our Roman series last week. She did an awesome job, didn't she? A girl can preach. She's very good. Wrapped up Romans and Romans 8. And so this uh, Sunday we're, we're starting Advent. And if you're, you're new to Advent or new to church, you might be wondering what Advent is and what it has to do with Christmas. It's a good question. And so the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which is itself a translation of the Greek word parousia, which is used in the New Testament to refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so Advent is this season on the church calendar in which Christians all over the world, and this is one of the things I love about Advent, is our brothers and sisters all over the world are they're thinking about the same things, they're reading the same text. We, we look back and we prepare our hearts to celebrate the original coming of Christ into the world at Bethlehem on Christmas Day, which is, of course, also preparing our hearts to celebrate the future coming of Christ in glory to judge the living and the dead and then reigning forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. And because of this, hallelujah, our biblical guide for the Advent journey is typically one of the prophets, quite often a prophet like Isaiah. We read Isaiah earlier in the service because it was the job of Israel's prophets to prepare the people for what God was about to do, which means that the ultimate job of Israel's prophets was to prepare them for what God did in becoming man in Jesus the Messiah. And so our, our Advent guide for Advent this year is going to be the prophet Habakkuk, right? He's a, he's a lesser known prophet. He doesn't have as much pub as some of his other uh, prophetic contemporaries. And we'll be walking through his, his short but very powerful prophecy for the next three weeks. Habakkuk is three chapters long. We'll take a chapter a week and let Habakkuk guide us through Advent. So let's start with a little bit of context so we can understand where the man is coming from. So in six 5 BCE, about 2,600 years ago, the, the Chaldean or Neo-Babylonian Empire, led by their new and, and, and very powerful young king, Nebuchadnezzar, you've heard about him, he's mentioned in the Bible, uh, they defeated, they eviscerated the joint Assyrian and Egyptian armies in a battle known as the Battle of Carchemish. Got an ancient, this is from 1905, I think, drawing the Battle of Carchemish. It was a very, very important battle, one of the most decisive and determinative battles in the ancient world because it marked the moment when the Neo-Babylonian Empire kind of fully ascended, the moment when the Babylonians took over the known world. It was also a very unique battle in the sense that it was alleged to have been a particularly brutal and vicious battle, wherein the Babylonians, they, they chased down the Egyptians even after they had surrendered and either captured or killed Every single one of them. King Nebuchadnezzar brags that he did not leave a single Egyptian that day at the Battle of Carchemish. And Carchemish is just 400 miles north of Jerusalem. Very, very close. Which means that this very vicious victory sent a shiver down Israel's spine. Because they knew that it was only a matter of time before King Nebuchadnezzar and his very vicious army, they were, 
knocking on the door, and it was not going to be a very pleasant visit. All right, so that's what's going down here. Pick it up in Habakkuk 1, and we'll start with verses 1 through 11. It'll be up here on the screen for you as well if you would like to read along there. Better get that. It says, <laughs> The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and yet you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, but you don't save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look upon wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Right, now God speaks. He says, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder. Because I am doing something in your days, you would not believe it if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who march through the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour all of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and they heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Habakkuk 1 verses 1 through 11. Now, do any of you remember, and this is not going back too far, uh, the the rather infamous opening monologue that Ricky Gervais gave at the 2020 Golden Globe Awards. Anybody? Right. Well, if you've seen an award show at any point in the last five or so years, then you have probably noticed that this certain and rather insufferable informal tradition has started to take root. Wherein these, these very famous people, you know, these celebrities, they, they get up there on stage and they, they receive their awards. And then they give all of us a, a meant to be inspiring, but mainly uninspiring and very annoying, vaguely humanitarian speech about the importance of justice and compassion and, you know, animal rights or something like that. And they mean well. You know, I know they mean well. They want to use their platform to do some good in the world, but it always comes off just a little gross and self-serving and look at me and how good of a person I am. I'm this really rich person, but you all should really get it together, right? You should all do better. And so in his opening monologue, Ricky Gervais preemptively and rather ruthlessly mocks all of these well-meaning but very annoying, vaguely humanitarian, self-serving speeches that he knows all these celebrities are about to stand up on stage all night long and deliver to the rest of us. I'm gonna give you just a little one-minute peek of what the speech was like. Apple roared into the the TV game with a morning show, a superb drama, yeah. A superb drama about the importance of dignity and doing the right thing, made by a company that runs sweatshops in China. So, well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Apple, Amazon, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? So, if you do win an award tonight, don't use it as a, a platform to make a political speech, right? You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. You know nothing about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg. So, if you win, right, come up, accept your little award, thank your agent and your God, and... So... 
It's already three hours long. Right, let's do the first award. The first Ooh, award. What? You know it's bad when you embarrass Tom Hanks. You know what I mean? Tom is the nicest person in the world. Ricky embarrassed Tom Hanks. Now, having started off the award show with that, man, that was the start of the award show, how do you think it would have then gone over for, uh, I don't know, Apple CEO Tim Cook? Doesn't he look so happy there at the beginning of the award show? He's, he doesn't know what's coming. How do you think it would have gone over for Apple CEO Tim Cook to walk up there on stage, receive his little award for his television show, and then give all of us a vaguely humanitarian, self-serving speech about the importance of dignity and doing the right thing? How do you think that would have gone over? It would have been crickets, right? It would not have gone over very well because Ricky Gervais had already struck first and delivered all such speeches laughable. <clears throat> Ricky had drawn first blood and it meant nobody would be listening to vaguely humanitarian speeches by Hollywood celebrities during the 2020 Golden Globes Award. And this is more or less exactly what the prophet Habakkuk has done here in the opening words of his prophecy. Only instead of preemptively subverting the vaguely humanitarian speeches of Hollywood celebrities, Habakkuk has done something even more audacious because he has preemptively subverted the very voice of the living God. Did you pick up on it? We'll work our way through it here. Verses 5 through 11 of this apparently well-known prophecy in which God gives this very rousing and awe-inspiring speech and he proclaims that he is raising up the Chaldeans, he is raising up the Babylonians in order to judge all the world for its sinfulness, Israel included. All right, here's what God says in verse 5. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder. God sounds like a magician here, doesn't he? For behold, I am doing something in your days. You wouldn't believe it if I told you, but I'm going to tell you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That's what's going down. And these kinds of proclamations were actually quite common in Israel's history. Because when a foreign empire arose to threaten Israel, the standard prophetic interpretation was that God was raising up these foreign empires to punish Israel for her unfaithfulness. So, for example, uh, the prophet Jeremiah, you all know Jeremiah, he's got a little more publicity. He wrote a bigger book than Habakkuk. You know, he had a better publishing deal. Um, he was a contemporary of Habakkuk wrote the exact same time, and he more or less says this exact same thing about the Babylonians. Right? This is Jeremiah 4, verses 5 through 8. It says, Declare it in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet in the land, cry aloud and say, Hey, you better assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. Lift up a standard toward Zion. Seek refuge. You better not stand still, for I am bringing evil from the north. That's where Babylon was. And great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. And destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out of his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. For this, put on sackcloth, lament, and wail. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. Right? Babylon is coming and it's not going to be pretty. God has raised them up to judge you. And so notice what Habakkuk has done here. He takes this very well-known and powerful stump speech that God tends to give when a foreign enemy arises to threaten Israel. And he pulls a Ricky Gervais at the Golden Globes because he preempts God's allegedly very powerful stump speech with a speech of his own. All right, notice, in verse 5, God's going to say what? I want you to look at what I'm doing. I want you to observe and be astonished. I am raising up the Chaldeans to judge you. And now listen again to what Habakkuk says in setting up God's powerful judgment speech. Right? This is verse 2. How long, O oh Lord, will I call for help and yet you will not hear me? I cry out to you violence and yet you don't save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? 
Yes, destruction and violence are what I see before me. Right? In other words, God is like, hey, here's what's going down. It's going to blow your mind. I am raising up the Chaldeans to judge you. And so look and see and observe and be amazed. But before God can even say that, Habakkuk gives himself the first word. And Habakkuk's like, hey, God, here's the deal. Um, I have looked and seen and observed your plan. And I am not amazed by it. In fact, not only am I not amazed by your allegedly awesome, mind-blowing plan, but I'm disgusted by it, and I'm disappointed by it, and I'm heartbroken. And so, God, instead of me looking upon your plan in amazement, I'm going to invite you, God, to look upon the unimaginable suffering and injustice that your allegedly awesome plan has caused. And so Habakkuk sets God's judgment speech up to fail by preempting it with a speech of his own. He Ricky Gervais's God. Then he gives God's standard judgment speech, and then he follows it up by explaining and elaborating further why he is not amazed at God's allegedly amazing plan. Pick it back up here now in verse 12. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord have appointed them to judge, and you, O rock, have established them, the Babylonians, to correct. But aren't your eyes too pure to approve evil? And you cannot look on wickedness with favor, so why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made them like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they bring them all up with a hook. They drag them away with a net and they gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and they're glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net. They burn incense to their fishing net because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? And so in essence, Habakkuk's like, God, look, man, I, I understand that some judgment is in order. I get it. You know, I, I, I get that, that everything doesn't have to go our way and that we have to be held accountable. I get that. But like, did you have to raise up the most wicked nation on the face of the planet to punish all the rest of us for our sins? Like, why in the world would you raise up the most unjust nation in the world to enforce your justice on all the nations of the world? Does that sound like a good and proportionate plan to anybody else? It'd be like if, you know, one of my sons got in trouble for talking too much in school. Very hypothetical. But if it happened, and Alice and I sit him down, we're like, hey, listen, little man, mom and I have talked. And we've decided that the only proportionate discipline for this infraction of you talking too much in class is we're going to have to send you to Guantanamo, my man. You'll thank me later. It's the only way. Or if my older son was, was mean to my youngest. Again, very hypothetical. And I sat him down. I said, son, you've been mean to your younger brother. I told you to stop that. So mom and I have talked. And what we're going to have to do to punish you is we're going to send you to a sleepover with the clown from it. You'll thank me one day. Don't take the balloon, though, son. Don't take the balloon. It's the only way. Now, I'm of the conviction. It's one of the deepest convictions I have. That, that the church, okay, and again, the church is not this building. It's you and me and our life together. Right? That's the church. That the church should be the most honest place on the planet. Anybody else agree with that? Makes sense to you? Church should be the most honest place on the planet. I'm of the opinion that there should be nothing that you think, think, doubt, or question about God that you don't also say to God and say to God, 
in church. Right? And so on behalf of everybody who's ever doubted or questioned God and God's plans, which is probably everybody, I, I just want to remind you that you're not crazy. I mean, maybe you are, but not because you doubted God and God's plans, you know? And you're not a heretic. That's not what a heretic is. And you're not going to hell. And you know what you are? You know what your problem is? You're a human. You're a human. Because as humans, as these teeny, tiny creatures glimpsing an infinite universe through a teeny, tiny, unfocused peephole for a nanosecond of existence that we call a lifetime, as humans, it can be very hard to understand God and God's plans, can it? I think it can be. And then even in those instances where you do kind of understand God and God's plans, it can still be very, very difficult to understand how some of those plans are any good, right? I mean, you know, how is it good? How in God's name is it good that the Astros made the World Series? Is that good? Amen. You hear them banging on their trash cans in the back. We know what you did. How is that good? It gets worse than that, of course. How is it good? I was reminded of this over the holidays, visiting people. How is it good that so many of us will get dementia as we age? You know, like in that season of life where memory would seem to be most important, we can become strangers to ourselves and our loved ones. Like, how is that good? How is it good that the world is so unfair, is so filled with inequality that some people can't seem to succeed no matter how hard they try, and some people can't seem to fail no matter how hard they don't try? <laughs> how is it good that children suffer? I did a funeral for a five-year-old girl yesterday. How is that, how is that good? What's good about that plan? Now, these are good, honest, biblical questions because they're human questions. And while there are many things that you and me will need to apologize to God for over the course of our lifetimes, you never have to apologize to God for being a human, okay? You never have to apologize to God for being a human. God knows what God made when God made you a human. God, in fact, knows what it's like to be a human. That's one of the truths of the incarnation at Christmas, right? And so this is why it makes my blood boil. It infuriates me when Christians, when churches try to police people's doubts, try to make them ashamed of their questions, because if we can't be honest about our questions and doubts in church, then where the hell are we supposed to be honest about them? Church? Rotary Club? Your Facebook groups? Where are we supposed to be honest about these things, people, if not in church? And that brings us to the last verse in our text for today. Habakkuk has dared to tell God, hey, God, I've seen your plan. Not impressed. In fact, it's very bad. I dare I say it sucks. And then he goes on to end, though, with this, right? This is Habakkuk 2, verse 1. He says, I will stand on my guard post. I will station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what God will say to me. And what I will answer when I am reprimanded. And the imagery here is just so vivid. All right, let's, let's get there. Uh, Habakkuk delivers this very challenging complaint to God where he tells God that God's allegedly awesome and inspiring plan is neither awesome nor inspiring, but it's a very, very bad plan, okay? Habakkuk says that. And then he says he's, he's now standing on his guard post. He's stationing himself on the rampart, which is what? It's military imagery describing somebody who's ready for a fight. Habakkuk's ready for a fight because he knows that he has called God out because he had to. Because God's plan did not make sense to him, and so pretending like it did when it did not would not have been faithful acceptance of God's plan, but rather it would have been unfaithful denial and resignation. 
And some of us need to hear this. A lot of us need to hear this. Because when you're angry or you're confused about God and God's plans, which happens to everybody, and you just, you know what you do? You just shove it down there in the basement, you know, get a lid on it because you want to be a good Christian who doesn't doubt. You just shove all those doubts and questions down there. And you're like, shut up. We trust the Lord in this house, right? When you do that, God is not pleased with you. God is not pleased with you because that isn't faith. That is denial and resignation, pretending to be faith. That's what it is. And so when our lives and our communities and our world are filled with suffering and injustice and racism and abortion is birth control, we gotta make everybody uncomfortable, crippling anxiety, then we need to stop pretending like it's all good. It's not all good. The Bible doesn't teach you to pretend like it's all good. Jesus didn't pretend like it's all good. So Habakkuk, he takes his stand on the watchtower and he calls God out because he is ready for a fight. But then notice how he balances his aggression with humility. Did you notice that? I love the way Habakkuk says this. He says, I will see what God will say to me in response and how I will answer him when I am reprimanded. Isn't that good? Because the man knows that a reprimand is coming. He knows because he knows that he's a teeny tiny human glimpsing an infinite universe through a teeny tiny unfocused people for a nanosecond of existence. The man knows that he's not the infinite God. He knows that. And so, you know, while Habakkuk refuses to pretend and give in to resignation and denial, so he also accepts that he's he's probably not completely right either. And so he refuses to give in to entitlement because some of us struggle with denial and resignation but then some of us struggle with entitlement now you know you're entitled if you ask questions like this why do bad things happen to good people have you ever asked that question probably the most common faith question it's a very entitled question to ask isn't it and we so rarely ask the more proper question for humans like you and me which would be Why do so many good and beautiful things happen to sinful people? Sinful people like you and like me. Doesn't seem like a more appropriate question. I think it does. And so I love how Habakkuk, what he does here is, man, he he gets up there on the high wire, you know, between two skyscrapers, and he shows us how to walk this tightrope between resignation and acceptance, this very biblical tension between protest and trust, because you gotta have both. And I've mentioned this a few times um, over the years because I think it's very important to keep in mind, but we are right now smack dab in the middle of a very large migration away from faith and toward various forms of unbelief in the modern world. I mentioned a couple months ago that for the first time in American history, just for instance, a majority of Americans are now for the first time not members of religious communities. So I showed you this graph. For all of American history, overwhelming majority of people, they belong to churches, synagogue, mosque, you name it, but now over the last 20 years, that has plummeted under 50% for the very first time. And everybody wants to know, like, why, like what is happening here? What has gone on over the last 20 years? Why is this happening? You know, is it, is it because of, like, science? It's because of uh, scandals in the church? It's because of religious pluralism. It's because of capitalism. It's because of the breakdown of the family. Is it, is it because of Harry Potter? Were the Harry Potter people right? Is it Harry Potter's fault? Everybody wants to know. And the most honest 
answer that I can give you is that I, I think it's clear there is no single simple explanation. But rather it is a convergence of a number of things that have created these conditions in which unbelief has become so believable to so many of us. For my money, the, the Canadian philosopher, don't hold that against him, Charles Taylor, um, he does the best job describing this phenomenon and he calls it a kind of weather. He says it's like this just unbelieving weather has kind of set in over the modern world. And you're probably not gonna like this, but um, I just don't really think there's anything big or immediate that we can do to change this weather. What are you gonna do to change the weather? We can't change this unbelieving weather. But what we can and must do is make sure that the church is a place where we are teaching people how to faithfully weather this unbelieving weather. Are you with me on this? The church has to be a place where we learn how to faithfully weather this unbelieving weather. To be even more specific, in this age where it is inevitable, where, where the weather dictates that you, and even more so, I promise you, your children and your grandchildren are gonna feel the tug of unbelief and doubt. I promise they will. It's the weather. We have to make sure that people understand that they do not have to leave the church to deconstruct their faith and ask their questions. We have to make sure that people understand that they do not have to leave the church to deconstruct and doubt. No, rather than telling people that they shouldn't, that they can't, that they better not deconstruct and doubt. Because is that ever worse for anything? Tell them, hey, don't do that. What are you, you going to do that? Instead of telling people, hey, you can't deconstruct, you can't doubt. <clears throat> Instead, we need to show them how to deconstruct and doubt faithfully in the church. We have to introduce them to faithful forms of doubt, faithful doubters like Habakkuk. Because the Bible was asking very difficult pointed questions about God long before it became fashionable to do so. All right? I want to end with this. Sometimes parents will, will ask me a question to the effect of, hey, how can I make sure that my kids don't doubt? I mean, and I, and I get it. I don't, I don't want my kids to doubt. I don't want anybody to doubt. It's miserable if you've ever been there. And I have been there. It is miserable. But my answer is always the same. How can you make sure that your kids don't doubt? You can't. You can't. And if you try to make sure that your kids don't doubt, all you will do is ensure that they are not going to tell you about it when they do. Okay? You hear me on this? If you try to make sure your kids don't doubt, all you're going to do is ensure that they ain't going to tell you about it when they do, and they will. Okay? Because just for example, I mean, instead of trying to make sure that your kids don't doubt, you better make sure that you are the first person they tell about it when they do, amen? All right, because when my, when my little boys and my little girl, when they don't know if they know if they know if they believe in Jesus, and it's gonna happen to them because it happens to me because it happens to all modern people, when they don't know if they know if they know if they believe in Jesus, I wanna be the first person to know about it. Because then you know what I can do? I can introduce them to their forefathers and mothers in the faith. I can introduce them to the riches of their faith, family, inheritance, and it is a very large inheritance. I can introduce them to friends like Habakkuk. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you so much for the gift of today. We do not deserve to be here. That is hard to remember. And so we come before you today as a room full of humans. 
And because of that, God, we've got all sorts of doubts and questions and confusion about you and your plans. It is hard to understand them. Even when we do understand them, it is hard to understand how they are any good sometimes. And so we bring before you this morning the burden of our doubt, the burden of our questions, because you can handle it, and you understand, and you know what it's like to be a human. And so I pray that in these moments, we would relieve ourselves of the burden of having to pretend like it's all good when it's not. That you would also relieve us of the burden of thinking we are entitled to only good things. And that we would, at the end of the day, be able to trust that we are sinners in the hands of a very merciful God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.